What is this book? What is this book? I, I know it's a Bible, but uh, what is it? Is this book, is all it is, is, is a collection of stories that help us be good, upright, moral people, along with the milieu of other stuff that helps us be good, moral, upright people. Is that what this book is? What use are the words of this book for real life? Is the God of this book involved in the world in which we live right now? At the beginning of the section of Isaiah we're in today, we hear similar questions from an invading king. Around the year 700 BC, the Assyrian Empire was expanding southward and came upon the tiny kingdom of Judah. In his tactics of fear and intimidation, the Assyrian king asked those of Judah, do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? For war? Mere words, do you think those are effective? Is that all we have? Do we just have mere words? Is there any kind of power behind these words? Perhaps we can rephrase the king of Assyria's question. We could, he could say to them something like, your religion is nice and all, but it's just sentimental. It's just words, words to make you feel better. Is God with us? And can we really trust him in the world right now? That's a key question throughout the book of Isaiah, especially in the part we're in today. Malcolm Muggeridge was a committed socialist who went to the Soviet Union in the 1930s expecting to find a worker's paradise. Instead found empty promises. Found that they were just mere words in the Soviet Union. He writes about one experience he had in a hopeless country. These are his words. He says, In Kiev, where I found myself on a Sunday morning, on an impulse I turned into a church where a service was in progress. It was packed tight, but I managed to squeeze myself against a pillar. Whence I could survey the entire congregation and look up at the altar. Young and old, peasants and town townsmen, parents and children, even a few in uniform. It was a variegated assembly. The bearded priests swinging their incense, intoning their prayers, seemed very remote and far away. Never before have I participated in such worship. The sense conveyed of turning to God in great affliction was overpowering. Though I could not, of course, follow the entire service, I knew from friends little bits of it. For instance, where the congregation says, there is no help for them save from God. What an intense feeling they put into these words. In their minds, I knew as in mine, was a picture of those desolate abandoned villages, of the hunger and hopelessness of the cattle trucks being loaded with humans in the dawn light. Where were they to turn for help? Not to the Kremlin. Not to the dictatorship of the proletariat. Certainly not to the forces of progress and democracy and enlightenment in the West. Every possible human agency 
was found wanting. So only God remained. And to God, they turned with a passion, a dedication, a humility impossible to convey. They took me with them. I felt closer to God then than I ever had before or am likely to again. When everything is gone and only God remains, you know the good news? We can trust him. Though they might not feel like gifts at the time, the moments in our lives when we have to depend entirely on the Lord, those moments are actually gifts from him. Though they don't feel like it at the time. In those moments, God shows us the kind of trust he wants from us. In those moments, God shows us the kind of trust he is worthy of. This passage in Isaiah today shows us a moment just like that. All hopes found wanting, turning to God with a passion. What Isaiah wants to drive home to his readers in this section, I think we could sum up in one main point, is saying that in real life, we must keep our eyes fixed on, our trust settled in, and our hearts pumping for the real God. In real life, we must keep our eyes fixed on, our trust settled in, and our hearts pumping for the real God. Now, if we could trust God when it really matters, then we could trust God all the time. We should trust God all the time. Now, the real-life account of King Hezekiah displays this for us. And real life is going to be a buzzword that I carry out throughout the sermon because real life is a good way to sum up what's going on here. We see Hezekiah's real life of triumphs and of failures, both showing that we can trust God with everything, and we should trust him alone. Now, if you've read chapters 36 to 39 of Isaiah in advance, you discover that these chapters are a lot different than what comes before it. They're written in a different style. They're written in the style of prose or narrative, whereas previously Isaiah has used the style more of poetry, specifically Hebrew poetry, which also often has consecutive lines saying basically the same idea but in different ways. Isaiah takes a break from that style, and tells a narrative or a story. And then he's going to pick up that poetic style right after these chapters. So a lot of people see chapters 36 to 39 as a kind of bridge between the two halves of Isaiah, between the first half and the second half. Now chapters 36 and 37 sum up really what Isaiah has been saying in the first half of his book. These chapters take the first half of the book and make it concrete show what all this looks like in actual, real life. So remember, we'll do a little bit of a review. In the first half of the book, we've heard Isaiah speak of the pride of the nations. We've heard him speak of God ruling as the one true king. We've heard Isaiah speak of walking in the world that is hostile to God, either in attacks or either in the world trying to seduce us away from following the Lord. In the first half of Isaiah, we've read of God getting people's attention by allowing them to hit a brick wall. And throughout all of the first half of Isaiah, we've heard the importance of a wholehearted trust in the Lord alone. 
So these chapters show us what the message of the first half of Isaiah looks like in real life, how it impacts real life. But these chapters also prepare us for the second half of Isaiah. You see, chapters 38 and 39 act as a reminder that trusting in God, the importance of doing that, is not going to go away. It's going to remain. And it's going to continue to be difficult, not easy. These chapters, chapters 38 and 39, are a bridge to the second half of Isaiah because they introduce the presence of a new empire in Judah. That new empire is Babylon. Another empire who will successfully invade Judah, take them over, and carry them away from their home. They're going to have to continue to trust God in that situation. So that's where we are, a bridge in the middle of Isaiah, chapters 36 to 39. It's how we fit in the entire story of the book. Given that these chapters very neatly divide into two, kind of 36 and 37, 38 and 39, we're going to have two overarching points for our time as we walk through it. Now, both of the points for our time are reasons to keep our eyes fixed on, our trust settled in, and our hearts pumping for the real God. These two reasons that God is worthy of this kind of trust is that God answers our fears and God answers our frailty. He answers our fears and he answers our frailty. First, God answers our fears. If you walk into the middle of an argument... It's easy to tell that something's wrong. That's pretty obvious. But it might be hard to tell how that argument got started, which would be helpful if you're going to make sense of the situation. Now, as we go right into chapter 36, we walk right into the middle of a conflict. It's going to help us to know the backstory of what's going on. So it's the moment in movies where kind of the, all the action pauses, it stops, you maybe hear a record scratch, and the narrator comes on and says, you might wonder how we got to this point. <laughs> Now, if you're not there yet, go ahead and turn to chapter 36 in Isaiah. It's on page 596. You're looking at the uh, Bible in the pew rack in front of you. If you're new to Old Oak, this is kind of what we do every week. We take a portion of God's Word. We usually walk through books. We try to give the meaning of the original text and apply it to ourselves today uh, and, how the, and see Christ in it as well. Um, so we call that expositional preaching. Uh, it's chapter 36 of Isaiah. So kind of the backstory of what's going on in this conflict. Remember that the tiny nation of Judah is dealing with the aggressive and powerful nation of Assyria. And Assyria has already conquered Israel, Judah's neighbor to the north. Assyria has now moved down into Judah and is on the brink of taking Judah's capital city of Jerusalem. Now previously, we saw that Judah's defense strategy against Assyria was to call on another country for help. That country was Egypt. Now, everybody knew that that was a bad idea. The people in Judah were just blind to it. The Lord knew that was a bad idea. Even the king of Assyria, he's going to say, this is a bad idea. You shouldn't do that. But the same scene that's described here in chapters 36 and 37 is also described in 2 Kings, chapters 17 to 20. We read a little bit of that earlier on in the service. It's there that we find a key detail for the backstory of what's going on here. In 2 Kings, we find that Hezekiah, the king of Judah, rebelled against the king of Assyria and would not serve him. 
Now this gave the king of Assyria extra incentive as he is making his way south toward Judah to make Hezekiah and his country pay. Now the king of Assyria, his name is Sennacherib, he sends a representative and a big army to kind of flex in front of Judah and intimidate them into surrendering. Now here's the scene. The enemy is at the gates. No more lines of defense. Assyria felt fully confident, even arrogantly confident, that it could wipe out Jerusalem very easily. But you know, they had to think practically as well. They had a growing and expanding empire. They had to maintain their forces throughout their uh, expanding empire. So it would be more convenient for Assyria to get Jerusalem just to surrender. It'd be quicker. They wouldn't have to focus as many troops there. So they don't come to Jerusalem starting with an attack right away. They come with a message, trying to get Jerusalem to give in and surrender. So here's the context. Enemies at the gates, hearing a message from the enemy, trying to get them to give in. And we're going to see the different tactics that the enemy used. They use fear tactics and others. They present to Judah a very convincing case to surrender. So we're going to look at those arguments that they make to Judah. Look with me at chapter 36, and we're going to start in verse 4. We're going to read through verse 20. Chapter 36, verse 4, we're going to read through verse 20. And the rapture said to them, Say to Hezekiah, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, On what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? In whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? Behold, you are trusting in Egypt, that broken reed of a staff, which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust him. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Jerusalem and Judah, you shall, not worship, you shall worship before this altar. Come now, make a wager with the master, the king of Assyria. I will give to you 2,000 horses if you are able on your part to set riders on them. How then can you repulse a single captain among the least of my master's servants who, when you trust in Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? Moreover, is it without the Lord that I have come up against this land to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. Then Eliakim, Shebna, and Joah said to the Rapshika, please speak to your servants in Aramaic for we understand it. Do not speak to us in the language of Judah within the hearing of the people who are on the wall. But the rapture said, Has my master sent me to speak to, the, to speak to these words to your master and to you and not to the men sitting on the wall who are doomed with you to eat their own dung and drink their own urine? That's in the Bible, yes. Then the rapture stood and called out in a loud voice in the language of Judah. Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying, the Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, make your peace with me. Come out to me. 
Then each one of you will eat of his own vine, each one of you of his own fig tree, each one of you will drink the water of his own cistern until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards. Beware, lest Hezekiah mislead you by saying, the Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Severim? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who among all the gods of these lands has delivered their lands out of my hand? That the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand. All these tactics, all these arguments, a very convincing case to get them to surrender. There's one more quick round of this I want you to see. Flip to chapter 37. After Assyria has been momentarily distracted by other threats, they send another threat. This one begins, I believe, in verse 5, I want to say. Thus you shall speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah. Do not let your God, in whom you trust, deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Behold, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all lands, devoting them to destruction. And shall you be delivered? Have the gods of the nations delivered them, the nations that my father destroyed? Sennacherib's words are convincing. We go back over all of his arguments. And what he, see, what he says seems plausible. It seems reasonable. Why? Why is this all so convincing? Much of, what, much of his arguments are based on just what is visible, what is concrete, tangible evidence that they can see. All the way back at the beginning, chapter 36, verse 2, he comes with a big army, it says. You've seen Lord of the Rings, know its book. This is like the scene where it scans over the entire field of the army of orcs. It's intimidating. Sennacherib, he comes with visible, tangible evidence that they can see. He comes with a proven track record of victory. King after king, nation after nation has fallen to Assyria. Even their neighbors to the north, Israel has. Even Judah has, to some extent, already lost some fortified cities to Assyria. A proven track record. Then Assyria, you notice, they, they shift who they're talking to. They start talking to the common people of Judah. They point out to the common people of Judah real-life conditions that they can see, that they've probably led other nations into. Really dire and distressful situation of crassly eating their own dung and drinking their own urine. You don't have to take poll numbers to figure out that nobody wants those conditions. Contrast to that, they're offering them conditions that are real, that they can see by pointing to their own riches. All they say is, come with us to our land. We'll give you a land just like your land. It'll be good. It'll be fine. It'll be abundant. Sennacherib's words are convincing. So it's worth noticing what he's really saying. His arguments remain in the realm of what is seen. 
what they can see with their eyes, what is visible. More than that, also if you notice closely what Sennacherib is saying, he also twists the truth of God's word. Back in chapter 36, verse 10, he says, Is it without the Lord that I have come up against this land to destroy it? The Lord said to me, Go up against this land and destroy it. Now we know that the most effective lies contain a hint of truth in them. Just as a sidebar, just because a a quote-unquote Bible teacher or a pastor quotes a Bible verse does not mean that it is completely truthful. We preach the original intent of Scripture. We don't lift out verses to preach our own agendas and bend Scripture to our agendas. Just be careful. Just because it quotes Scripture doesn't mean it's true. So here's the same thing works for Sennacherib. Back in Isaiah chapter 10, God said that Assyria was a tool in his hand to test and correct his people in Judah. Now Sennacherib takes that truth and uses it, twists it to argue that Judah therefore should not trust in the Lord. These are ancient tactics. Twisting God's word in order to show that God does not really care about people. You could think all the way back to Eden with that. The truth was that God allowed Judah to get to this point, to get to the end of their resources so that they could see that they really could trust the Lord with everything that they had. So at the bottom of what Sennacherib is saying to Judah is that God can't deliver on his word, but he could. Just look at the evidence. He's proven that time and time again. He's destroyed other so-called gods in different nations. Now, we don't have this exact type of situation as Judah did. But we have fears. We have anxieties. We have uncertainties in all of life. We hear messages that undermine our trust in the Lord. And we should know when those fears and anxieties and messages will be the most effective. When they will work in our hearts. Those fears and messages and anxieties will work when we play their game. When we play their game. When we look first and look only to what is seen. Think about this. If we stick only to looking at what is seen, if that is our focus then it's going to shape our strategies for life. Our strategies are going to be what's most pragmatic in what is seen. Based on the visible evidence, what works the best? Because that will lead to compromise. If we stick to focusing on what is seen, it's going to shape what our goals for life are. If we're only focused on what is seen, we are going to want to maximize and protect what is seen. And do what works to maximize and protect what is seen. To maximize and protect money, good looks, health, brains, acceptance in the right circles. Play along with with their game. Remain focused on what is seen. Could it be that so many of us are devastated, anxious, Because we're focused on only what's seen, only on what's here, only on what's limited. 
Listen, we can enjoy what is here. But if we live only for what's here, then we'll constantly be disappointed. Just will be. The best of what's offered here is just is so fleeting. It's out of our grasp. Even if we do get it, we'll never have enough of it. Even if we do get it, we'll lose it. I think the moments when we fear and worry the most are when we come face to face with that reality that we'll never have enough, that we're losing what is here. Now, Sennacherib's tactics can teach us the strategies he used, his convincing arguments. They can all teach us how to examine our fears, how to start doubting our doubts, to question our worries. Ask ourselves questions like, where do our fears cause us to look? Do they cause us to look only at what is seen and visible? Are our fears based on the truth, on what is truth, or are they based on the twisting of God's word? Are there lies behind our fears, what makes us worried? Maybe the most important question of all, what do our fears show about what we trust in or who we trust in? So often it's that we trust in ourselves and how much we can control our situation that causes us to fear and to panic. We trust how much we can control. So in these chapters, we see not only how to take the real fears we have in real life and examine them, put them under a microscope and see their holes, but we also see how we could take real fears to a real God. So two times when Hezekiah heard Sennacherib's threats, we see his very first response to hearing it. We see where he first looked. Look at chapter 37, verse 1. It says, as soon as King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes, covered himself with sackcloth, and did what? Went into the house of the Lord. Chapter 37, verse 14. After receiving a letter from the king of Assyria, Hezekiah's very first response. 37, verse 14. It says, Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. Hezekiah took what was a scary and real situation. He does not dismiss it. He does not try to distract himself from it. He does not try to escape from it. His first step, his first look are to the Lord. Friends, let's pray that God would make that our first instinct. That when we are scared, when we are overwhelmed, that we would not focus so much on our situation that we forget to turn toward the Lord, to look up, to pray. God doesn't ask us to dismiss our fears, but not to focus on them. Look at Hezekiah's prayer in chapter 37, verses 15 to 20. 37, uh, verses 15 to 20. He prays, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear 
Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations in their their lands and have cast their gods into the fire. For they were no gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they were destroyed. So now, O Lord, our God, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are God. Hezekiah knows his fears. But what he does with it, the very first thing he does with it, is take his fear to the Lord. His first thought, his highest priority, his deepest desire is not his own personal safety. It's not a focus on himself. It's the Lord and the Lord's glory. The Lord is not just the most important thing to Hezekiah. The Lord is Hezekiah's life. He is his everything. One commentator says about his prayer, when our personal fate is no longer what we're living for, when our own ideal life scenario of perfect health and perfect marriage and perfect children, and perfect job, and perfect church, and perfect control, when that's no longer what we're clinging to and demanding of life. When all we want is the glory of God to be put on display through our existence. That's when God fills us with overcoming courage. We ask questions about what we feared in light of Sennacherib's tactics. We can ask questions about our faith in light of Hezekiah's prayers. Whatever hard point, whatever crucible, whatever trial that you are in right now, however real, however scary, however overwhelming, however defeating, we can ask, who is God? And how is who he is relevant to my situation? Who is God and how does who he is speak to my situation? You see, Hezekiah's prayer is powerful because he remembers who he prays to. He remembers who he prays to. He doesn't pray to just another local tribal deity. He doesn't buy the lies of Sennacherib. He knows he prays to the real king who rules over all the earth, who hears his people and who acts on his people's behalf. Hezekiah knows who God is, and that answers Hezekiah's fears. That gives him courage. So who is God? We can answer it again in verse 26 of chapter 37. Who is God? Verse 26, God says he is the one who planned and wrote all of history. How does that speak to our situation? Well, verse 21, the sovereign God who planned all of history has chosen to accomplish his plan through the prayers of his people. Boy, that boosts the importance of our prayers. One of God's chosen means to bring about his plan. Now, as we close this section, I want you to see how it ends. I want you to see how it ends. At the end of chapter 37, 
starting at verse 32. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into the city or shoot an arrow there or come before it with a shield or cast a besieged mound against it. By the way that he came, by the same way he shall return. And he shall not come into the city, declares the Lord, for I will defend the city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. And the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived at Nineveh. And as he was worshiping him in the house of Nishrach, his god, Adremelech and Sherezer, his sons, struck him down with the sword. And after that, they escaped into the land of Ararat. Asarajan, his son, reigned in his place. The people of Judah, including Hezekiah, king of Judah, they heard two voices. The voice of Sennacherib that said, you should be afraid. You cannot really trust in God. They also heard the voice of God that says, you shouldn't be afraid. You really can trust me. Friends, each one of us hears those voices in some form every single day. And we have to ask, which voice are we going to listen to and follow? Perhaps a helpful thing to keep in mind is, is the end of this story. Which path proved to be right? Whose plan was accomplished? You could see it in the difference between the kings, the difference between Hezekiah and Sennacherib. Hezekiah went into the house of God and got help. Sennacherib went into the house of his God and got killed. So, in real life, we should get real about our fears and then get real about our God. It's then we'll have the courage to see that God answers our fears and overcomes our fears because nothing is greater than God. Now, there's a way... There's a way that heroes are both inspiring and discouraging at the same time. Both inspiring, inspiring and discouraging. We can read of somebody like Hezekiah who has a triumphant moment of faith. And we say to ourselves, in facing my fears, I want to be like Hezekiah. I want to turn to God. I want to trust God. I want to be concerned with God's glory alone and find courage. But you might be tempted like me to read of heroic faith and feel pretty crummy and inadequate. You may, like me, see and hear the eloquence of others talk about God, see and hear their genuine relationship they have with God, their insight, their passion for Christ, and instead of rejoicing over God's grace through that person, just feel really defeated and feel weak. Friends, the good news is that God does not save us based on the strength of our faith. The good news is God does not just answer our fears. He also answers our frailty and our weakness. We don't trust in how much we trust Christ. We trust in Christ. That's how it worked for Hezekiah too. Hezekiah needed grace. Hezekiah needed a savior. He needed an advocate. His faith was not perfect. He was familiar with sin just as we are. We will see very soon. 
Chapter 37, verse 35. 37, verse 35. Get a little bit of a hint that Hezekiah needs a Savior. God says that he answered Hezekiah's prayer for the sake of his own glory and for the sake of his servant David. Now, Isaiah is going to continue to talk about a servant. That's going to, he's going to carry that throughout his book. And later on in his book, he will see that a servant is more than just a servant. He is also a substitute. And ultimately, the greater David, the greater servant, the greater substitute is Jesus. We're not saved because we have a perfect faith. We are saved because another one is perfect and he died in our place for our sins. So heroic faith might remind us of our weaknesses quicker than it inspires us to do the same. But it's then when we remember God answers our weaknesses through Christ, through a substitute. So if the first section we said we should get real about our fears and get real about our God, here we say in the second section, it's shorter, I promise, <laughs> that we should get real about our frailty and again get real about our God. Now frailty shows up right away in chapter 38. Right away. Hezekiah is sick. Hezekiah is about to die. It does not get more frail than that. Here's the real life brick wall moment that we've been waiting for. If there is any time that we should have deep, honest, real conversations, it's when we're in the hospital room. So in this frail, weak state, Hezekiah again first turns to the Lord. He says, please, O Lord, remember how I have walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. Even Hezekiah's prayer was weak and frail. Was it true? Did Hezekiah really walk after God with faithfulness and a whole heart? We're going to see very soon that the answer is no. But God gives grace. In Hezekiah's weak and frail state and weak and frail prayer, we see how God answers his weakness and his frailty. For one, God shows that he is sovereign over life and death. He is the one who is able to extend Hezekiah's life, heal him for real. But for God to use that power for people cannot be because people earned it. It has to be because God gave it out of grace. Notice how God describes himself in answering Hezekiah. He says, thus says the Lord, the God of David, your father. Again, just a subtle reminder that God hears Hezekiah's prayer because of a substitute. In our weakness, in our frailty, we can know God is powerful and we can know God hears our prayers because we have a greater substitute. Jesus, who gives us entrance into the throne of grace. Frailty, God answers it. But then we come to the end of chapter 38 and then into chapter 39. This time we don't just see frailty in Hezekiah's body. We see frailty in Hezekiah's faith. God promised to heal Hezekiah. And Hezekiah was grateful. We read of that in verses 10 to 20 of chapter 38. Hezekiah even came to realize that his healing was a gift of grace, that it involved sins being forgiven of him in verse 17. 
And then we see at the very end of chapter 38, God went as far as showing, Hezekiah, uh, showing his love for Hezekiah, his love and his grace for him by literally touching Hezekiah's body. Verse 21, chapter 39. Let them take a cake of figs and apply it to the boil that he may recover. So the Lord can heal through supernatural and natural means. How did Hezekiah respond? Verse 22 says, what is the sign that I shall go up to the house of the Lord? This should sound a little off. What is the sign? Hezekiah is asking for a sign. God, show me a sign. He's looking for a visible, tangible sign after God had already given him one. A visible, tangible sign after God had already promised to do something for him. Way back in chapter 7, Hezekiah's father, Ahaz, refused a sign of God's promise when it was offered to him. Here, Ahaz's son asked for a sign because God's promise was not enough for him. So you see, this is, this is frail, weak faith. In one moment, grateful, trusting God, and the next moment, trusting God on his own terms. Like many of us, Hezekiah was one who showed great joy in the Lord in one moment and just effective unbelief in the Lord the next. Double-minded. But then we go to chapter 39. And if frail faith was turned up to a 5 before, frail faith is now turned up to a 10 in chapter 39. This is the last part we'll read, almost done. Chapter 39 says, At that time, Merodach Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent envoys with letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he had heard that he had been sick and had recovered. And Hezekiah welcomed them gladly, and he showed them his treasure house, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, his whole armory, all that was found in his storehouses. There was nothing in his house or in all his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. Then Isaiah the prophet came to King Hezekiah and said to them, What do these men say? And from where do they come to you? Hezekiah said, They have come to me from a far country, from Babylon. He said, What have they seen in your house? Hezekiah answered, They have seen all that is in my house. There is nothing in my storehouses that I did not show him. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which is in your fathers have stored up all to this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the, kings, in, the, in the palace of the king of Babylon. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. For he thought, There will be peace and security in my days. It's humbling that we can be so used to the concept of God's grace, so used to it that we actually become cold toward it and more impressed by other things. To be honest with you, like as I worked, to this, worked on this sermon <laughs> at this point, the day of writing this sermon, there were moments when it felt like drudgery, when it felt head-bangingly frustrating. But then, throughout the day, 
to go back and forth to help with Operation Christmas Child, to watch videos with some of our volunteers of little kids, just joyous smiles on their faces, receiving such meager gifts. The joy of receiving God's grace. That's not to say that we're to fake smiles. Friends, it might be to say that we do not smile over God's grace often enough. Smile. That we, how much we've received, how much we've been forgiven. Just smile over that. How beautiful and wonderful that is and what it costs the Lord. The blood of the eternal Son of God made man. We get used to this. We get used to coming here. We get used to opening up his word. We just get used to the concept of grace. So used to it that we pursue joy elsewhere. That was Hezekiah. That was Hezekiah. God was no longer enough for him. He wanted to be a player in international politics. And when an important country came to town, this was Hezekiah's chance. Didn't consult God. He wanted worldly recognition, and that is exactly what would get his country into trouble. So he showed off his stuff. Tried to impress. The Babylonians were an empire. They had seen much greater riches. This would be like a person showing off their 05 Civic to someone who has a collection of Ferraris. (laughs) All the Babylonians were thinking probably is... This is the stuff we're just going to take from you when we conquer you. And that's exactly what happened. Now think about this. Think about why the Babylonians came to Judah in the first place. They came because Hezekiah was healed. So instead, what if Hezekiah's first thought was the Lord at this point? And he hears Babylonians are coming. He's like, you know what? I don't have as much stuff as the Babylonians. And you know what I do have, though, that they don't have? I have the God of the universe. More important than stuff anyway. I have the God of the universe who healed me. I want to tell them about him. Of course, that's not what happened. And even when Hezekiah is confronted and is told the outcome of his actions, he essentially says, Isaiah, it's all good. At least there's going to be peace and comfort in my own days. I don't have to worry about anything. In our frailty, we say that God has given, what God has given us is not enough. That is the frail state of our faith. We take our eyes off of him, pursue joy elsewhere. Like Hezekiah could be pursuing joy in our own recognition, our own approval, our own comfort, our own peace. We are like Hezekiah. We've talked about fears. We've talked about death. We've talked about sin. We've talked about failures. We face those same realities as this man faced. So where do we go with them? Go to the one who's entered our fears, who stood in the face of the greatest fear ever known to humankind, the wrath of God against sinners. A fear so deep, so real that he sweat drops of blood. A fear that he looked directly in the face and went toward and endured and conquered. 
So through all these realities, our fears, our failures, our sins, our frailty, go to Jesus, who in his death on the cross overcame everything that would make us afraid, abolished death, and paid for our sin. Went through all of that so that we don't have to. Jesus is God's ultimate answer to our fears and to our frailty. Friend, if you have never come to Jesus, if you have never come to Christ trusting him alone, do that today. Find me afterwards. We would love to talk to you about that more. And for those of us who have, we are still like Hezekiah. And our faith is frequently frail. Hard times bring that out. Good times bring that out. Friends, can we be honest with ourselves that we have this tendency in us to wander, to be frail, that there is still sin in us? Hebrews 3.12, take care, brothers, lest there be any, any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Let's be honest with ourselves. It is not hard to love something more than God. It's just not. But friends, let's also be honest about our God. He is the one who restores our souls, as we read earlier, Psalm 23. He is the one who seeks straying sheep. He is the one who has given us an advocate before him, Jesus Christ the righteous. So when we sin, we know we have the finished payment for our sin. He is the one who puts sheep back on his shoulders and carries them with joy. He is the one of whom it is said, when we are faithless, he is faithful. His kindness, his grace awakens us to turn back to him and repent. Judah needed to know this. Judah needed to know that in the days ahead, they would need renewal. They would need to keep their eyes, their trust, their heart on God alone, especially as this new empire, Babylon, came to power. Their king, Hezekiah, failed them in the face of Babylon. But you know who wouldn't fail them in the face of Babylon? God. That's what Hezekiah is going to show throughout the entire second half of his book. We will finally make it, not because we had the strength to hold on to God, but out of his patience and grace, God held on to us. There's that sweet line of the chorus from Jesus, what a friend of sinners. Saving, helping, keeping, loving. He is with us to the end. So as we close the, example, the account of Hezekiah, a real-life example, we say, in real life, we are going to face real fears, real frailty, but we do not have to face them apart from the real, sovereign, powerful, saving, and merciful God. Let's pray. Lord, we are weak, but you are strong. We are sinful, but you are holy, and you are merciful, and you have died for sinners. So God, when everything is thrown away, when everything is fallen and sunken down, would you show us that we can trust you? Would you be our only hope in life and in death? Would you give us a wholehearted dependence on you each day, each moment? And God, would you be glorified through us? Make that our desire. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.